الجزيره بودكاست A sportscaster's tweet sends one of the world's most respected broadcasters spinning into crisis. The BBC suspends, then reinstates its best-paid star, promising a review of its own guidelines amid questions over impartiality and political influence. I'm Mohamed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, now let's get to all our guests. All of them are in London. We're joined by Aidan White, founder of Ethical Journalism Network. Kez Siddiqui, a former refugee and human rights lawyer specializing in immigration and asylum law. And Stephen Barnett, professor of communications at the University of Westminster and a former advisor to the House of Lords Select Committee on Communications. A warm welcome to you all and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Aidan, let me start with you today. Um, did the BBC expect the level of criticism it got uh, when it came to all of this? And, and how damaging has it been for the BBC? No, I mean, I think the BBC were completely taken by surprise. I, th- I think they, they walked into this uh, uh, car crash, uh, and, and it seems to me that they, they just weren't aware of the consequences of what they were doing. Uh, it, it seems to me that they didn't realise, uh, they weren't aware of the, uh, the double standards that you know, were clearly being employed here. Uh, in recent years, we've seen many TV presenters uh, and journalists who have expressed themselves robustly on social media but maintained due impartiality when they're on the air. And Gary, Lin- Gary Lineker, who is a veteran in the use of social media, uh, has always been very, very careful about his on-air pronouncements. And, and therefore, it came as a big shock and surprise when he was suddenly facing attack. And there was a great perception that the, the BBC was being influenced, heavily influenced by some government sources. And I, and I think the perception that the BBC itself was being bullied into taking action against Lineker actually led them in, into the crisis that they found themselves. And they made a complete mess of it because they didn't realize that they were stirring up something which would cause a great deal of anger internally and externally because of, one, it's an attack on freedom of speech, which is straightforward, and two, it was clearly being used as a diversion by some government uh, figures to, to divert attention from the need for a proper public debate about an important piece of government policy, which, which was making a major shift in attitudes towards migration and which appeared to be in straightforward contradiction to Britain's international human rights obligations regarding refugees. Uh, Aidan, let me just follow up with you with regards to a couple of the points you made. You talked about, from your point of view, this being an attack on freedom of speech, uh, but you also talked about the fact that, uh, that, you know, when it comes to social media, there have been other presenters, other journalists who utilize social media in a way that still maintains impartiality. First, I want to ask you, how thin is that line these days? Because you have this convergence between traditional media and social media, and it seems that that line keeps shifting when it comes to what exactly is acceptable for journalists to be putting out there on their accounts on social media. But then also, how big of an attack on freedom of speech do you think this was? Look, I I think it was a big attack on freedom of speech. There is a complete difference between the opinions that you give as a journalist, working as a journalist, and I think everyone, news presenters and and others, uh, recognise that when they're on the air, when they're representing the BBC in a particular format, 
that they have a responsibility for impartiality. When they're off the air, when they're acting as individuals, they have the, the, the right to express themselves freely. And the BBC uh, have long recognised this. You've had big figures, big uh, figures like Alan Sugar or Andrew Neil, well-known in, 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 in Britain, in media and outside media, who've been able to express themselves quite robustly on uh, political matters. And the moment that, that Gary Lineker does it, suddenly the BBC uh, is, is, is in a state of panic. And it, it gives the perception that it is a sort of particular point of political view that the BBC has allowed itself to, to deal with. The, the real problem here, though, is the lack of consistency in the way that the BBC applies and has applied its rules regarding due impartiality. The BBC has a strong and admirable ethical base in the way that it works, and that's built its reputation around the world as a premier broadcaster. But its failure to implement its impartiality rules in a consistent manner has called those very rules into question, which is why we've got the mess that we have today. And you're right. Of course, there is a difference uh, these days between social media and, and there's a very narrow line. So everyone has to be very careful in the way that they use social media. And I think Gary Lineker has demonstrated that he is careful. He has taken his time. Over the years, he has been the subject of criticism. So he's learned to use social media with discretion and with a great deal of respect to the position that he holds. The BBC has found out the hard way that challenging someone like this mm. uh, at what appears to be the behest of political pressure can actually lead to quite devastating consequences. Stephen, BBC Director General Tim Davies sent an email to BBC staff. He said that it was a difficult balancing act to get right where people are subject to different contracts and on-air positions and with different audience and social media profiles. He also said that he recognized that there are gray areas which have caused potential confusion. So one aspect of this story, and you heard Aidan sort of make mention of this, is the fact that Gary Lineker is, is a freelancer or a contractor at the BBC. He's not a permanent staff member. Um, and some have suggested that that could mean that the BBC social media guidelines don't apply to him. But is that a distinction that would be lost on the typical viewer? I don't see why it should be. Um, I, I, I mean, first of all, I, I think we should welcome what is clearly a BBC retraction. Um, there hasn't been, he's apologised for the lack of uh, sports programming, uh, but not for what Hayden quite rightly says is a complete mess that uh, it's entirely of the BBC's own making. Um, I, I think people are pretty canny these days. And, um, you know, I, I, I think Aidan got it absolutely right when he says there is people have the right to express themselves uh, in their own personal capacities on their social media accounts, obviously within certain guidelines, uh, assuming that they are not uh, news presenters or involved in news and current affairs. And I think most licensed payers, BBC viewers, listeners would recognise that it's perfectly okay for Gary Lineker, Alan Sugar, Jeremy Clarkson, we could list a whole raft of BBC non-news presenters to have their own views, they're entitled to their views, they're entitled to express them. What they're not entitled to do is to use their BBC platform, i.e. you don't want to see Gary Lineker talking about politics on Match of the Day, um, nor would he do that. But I think to start trying to effectively censor uh, popular BBC figures from expressing themselves is, is, is actually a recipe for BBC disaster, because what it means in the end is that you will exclude a whole host of 
popular on-screen talent from ever wanting to work at the BBC. And um, that would be pretty catastrophic for the BBC mm. as a universally uh, a universal broadcaster with universal appeal. Stephen, let me follow up with you and ask you about the, the difference here between the issue of, of impartiality and the issue of independence. Because many who criticized the BBC for suspending Gary Lineker suggested that it was due at least partly uh, to right-wing political pressure being applied on the broadcaster. Um, Aidan was mentioning this a few moments ago as well, as far as that being the perception these days. Um, is that suggestion going to be damaging in the long run for the BBC? I mean, how much concern is there about that? Yeah, I, I, I think that is very damaging. Uh, I think there are two issues here. One is, is uh, very specific political pressure. Uh, and there's no question that the government, uh, I, th I, I think, is in trouble on, uh, on this asylum bill and is using it as a way to distract people from the fact that what they're wanting to do is, in uh, international law, unlawful. Um, but I think the other thing that, that, that we need to uh, remember in the UK is the fairly insidious influence of the right-wing national press. We have a, a national newspapers in the UK, particularly the Daily Mail and the Sun, which are um, certainly used to be the highest selling papers, and they're certainly read frequently online, which are pretty uncompromising uh, in their right-wing stance, particularly on issues of immigration and asylum. Um, and there is certainly some evidence that while the Lineker tweets were sort of bubbling away under the radar a little bit, it wasn't until the front pages of those newspapers really pushed the narrative that this is the BBC being outrageously partisan, that it started to take off as a big story. So I think we mm. shouldn't underestimate the power of those newspapers to set a right-wing agenda and the importance of the BBC being able to stand up and to resist and be seen to resist those pressures. Mm. I think the other issue, by the way, that muddies all of this is the position of the, uh, the current BBC chairman, mm. Richard Sharp, who is currently under investigation. Uh, an independent investigation for having um, his part in in brokering a deal. Stephen, to, uh, I'm sorry uh, to interrupt. A loan, a loan for the, pri the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I'm sorry to interrupt. I do want to get back to that point with you in just a minute, but I also want to ask Kez about something you were talking about. Kez, you heard Stephen there talk about, from his perspective, uh, the right wing national press uh, in in the UK is pushing a certain narrative, and there are a growing number of voices saying that this controversy has been a distraction from the real discussion that needs to happen about asylum plans in the UK. Uh, from your perspective, do you think that's the case? Um, yes, uh, I believe that there's, there's a huge coincidence that last week only the um, illegal migration bill was introduced and following that immediately this controversy uh, has ensued. So I think that there's a, uh, there's a political agenda behind all of this. And uh, we've seen throughout, uh, throughout history that <clears throat> when it comes to um, general elections, close to general elections, um, there's, there's a hype about certain, um, certain people to appeal to a, to a certain dynamic. And uh, what better way to cause controversy um, by uh, targeting the vulnerable uh, groups of individuals in our society, which is the asylum seekers? Um, so so I, I do think that there is a political agenda behind this, because Otherwise, why would there be um, a political condemnation on Gary Lineker and 
uh, from a legal and political perspective, I don't understand why. And the other guests have explained it uh, very well. Uh, so, yes. Because mm. uh, um, there are analysts who say that the government's asylum policies are not going to deter people from trying to get to the UK. Uh, from your vantage point, uh, will these policy policies actually accomplish what the government wants? Will it in any way curb migration? Well, I mean, we have to look back on the Nationality and Borders Act, which was only um, introduced last year, which received royal assent on the 28th of April. Um, and I've, um, myself, my team, my team and uh, other law firms have been heavily involved in the Rwanda litigation, which was the um, one of the main policy points that they were pushing to reduce the number of uh, small boat crossings uh, through the English Channel. Um, and we've seen that it hasn't had any positive um, effect. Uh, in fact, it's had the opposite effect of what, what it was aimed for or intended for, um, because in 2020, there were, there were only 8,000 um, small boat crossings across the English Channel. Um, in 2021, that was over 25,000. And last year, it was over 45,000. And this year, as predicted, is going to be around 60,000 or more uh, asylum seekers. So you can see that it, it hasn't had the effect that they wished it to have, which was a deterrent mm. effect. Um, and I, I personally don't believe that um, it's it, it's going to um, going to have the effect that it was intended for. And um, because even though mm. uh, they, they have introduced this and um, have said that this is what they want to do, I mean, the Home Secretary herself on the first page of the bill has said that she's not even sure whether she can promise that, it's in, that the bill is in contravention with the mm. European Convention of Human Rights. So essentially saying that she can't promise that those those individuals' human rights won't be breached, uh, and which was followed up by the UNHCR, which is the mm. body responsible for the international refugee community, saying that it's a clear breach if their human rights aren't uh, considered in the UK. So there's so many um, there's so many grey areas and shortcomings in the bill that is to a point of uh, mm. when it's concerning, quite frankly, embarrassing. All right, let's take a step back for a moment. Uh, Gary Lineker made another statement on small boats as his return to the BBC was confirmed. He said, however difficult the last few days have been, it simply doesn't compare to having to flee your home from persecution or war to seek refuge in a land far away. It's heartwarming to have seen the empathy towards their plight from so many of you. Aiden, uh, let me ask you about this. Um, this tweet from Gary Lineker, would this suggest to you that no matter what the review of the BBC's social media guidelines ultimately finds. Uh, Mr. Lineker does feel secure in continuing to tweet his opinions, at least on this matter? Yeah, I mean, I think he would, I think he will, absolutely. He he's really feels very strongly about it. And I think in this particular case, on reflection, he may have actually uh, tweeted the second part of his, the, the major point he was making in a slightly different manner. Well, the, 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 that's the learning experience. But I think this political question is massively important. Here we have a, a, a major Western government about to challenge the 1951 International uh, uh, Convention on, on on refugees, which is actually very, very specific. The International Convention is very clear. It says that irregular entry into a country does not disqualify someone applying for refugee status. So it's very, very clearly a severe breach of international law. That's, that's one thing. And I think that the, the, the government is ready to admit that it is, it is going to be in breach of the law. 
But, but secondly, there's something really potentially damaging. Already, some countries in Europe have indicated that they will be prepared to follow the British route in dealing with migration in the future. And that could lead to a domino effect, which could be devastating for, for, you know, for, for the hopes and expectation of people who are fleeing persecution around the world, that Europe would be a friendly place for them to go, where international rights would be protected and maintained. Mm. And unfortunately, I think that what we're seeing here is the possibility that that will be set aside. The final point I want to make on this and why it's such an important political issue, uh, the lack of self-awareness within the BBC among its leaders about their, their political connections, I think, has contributed to the, uh, what I would call, complacency in the way that they've treated this issue from the start. It's not just Richard Sharp who has strong Tory connections. Tim Davey has a history of connections with the Conservative Party and, uh, and so on. So we know that the leadership, the Director-General and the Chair of the BBC have political connections and political history. That is not without some uh, importance in looking at, in the round, how the BBC have responded to this de debate over asylum. Uh, Stephen Aiden was talking there about BBC leadership um, uh, being embroiled in this controversy right now, and I want to get back to a point that you were making uh, earlier. Uh, one complicating factor in all this is uh, the issue of BBC's chairman, Richard Sharp. Uh, he's a Conservative Party donor. He's been linked to arranging a loan for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He denies any conflict of interest, but there are prominent political voices in the UK calling for him to step down from his role at the BBC. How much does all of this complicate the controversy? How much does it uh, potentially damage the BBC even further? Well, I think it lends weight. That This is the problem. It lends weight to the sense that the BBC is surrendering to a right-wing, a government agenda. Can I just, before I, I, I answer that question directly, can I just come back to something that Aidan said? Because that, that Lineker, his, his latest tweet, I think was really classy. Because what he, he, I think he was doing two things. First of all, he was saying... In the, in the scheme of things, let's not forget the people who are really suffering. That's important. But the second thing, I think he was, he was making it quite clear that he's not going to stop speaking. And if this review comes up with some kind of formula that prevents him and people like him from speaking their mind on important moral issues, I think he's effectively said, I'm out of here. And I think that's that's really important. So, sorry, I, I just wanted to make that point as, a, as an addendum. But just coming back to what you were saying, um, what you were asking about the complication of uh, senior BBC members, uh, the chairman and, and others, as I say, it lends weight to the sense that there is a one-sided agenda. And what we've heard really since 2016 in the UK, since the Brexit referendum, is this sort of drumbeat of complaints coming from the right about a liberal bias, a metropolitan elite. And the problem with that constant drumbeat is that I think what you get within the BBC, and it's happened over decades, over the last hundred years, that they look over their shoulders and they think, this is what the ruling party is saying about us. This seems to be something that's uh, that's in the air, and therefore there is a, a tendency to overcompensate, to go too far the other way. Mm. So I'm not sure there is... Uh, I, I think there is a problem with uh, too much uh, conservative with a capital C influence at the top of the BBC. I think there's a more important cultural issue, which is looking over their shoulders and being too careful about whether they are going to uh, somehow... Um, 
uh, uh, put off the the, the the people that in, in government. They they they're going to alienate members of the government. I think there's been a real shift in politics in this country, and the BBC is actually in danger of looking mm. really out of touch with the new politics. Kez, Aidan was speaking earlier about um, the potential impact that migration policies in the UK could have on other countries throughout Europe. And I wanted to ask you from your vantage point, how much concern is there about the impact that migration policies in the UK could have on other countries? Well, um from from a, from like a legal perspective, we have to understand that uh, at the moment with the Rwanda litigations, all eyes are on us to see what the outcome of that will be, so that other countries, uh, other European countries, can implement it uh, in, into their legal system as well. Um, so the, the uh, all eyes are are, are are on us. So um, uh, having to um, have that sort of pressure on us, we try to perform. And sometimes when you are trying to do that, you try to do more than you can chew. You can bite, you bite more than you can chew. So that is essentially what is happening at the moment mm. uh, with the uh, legal migration bill, where uh, they're, they're, they're just trying to uh, please and, and, uh, and try to resolve this issue by making and uh, setting uh, um, sort of targets uh, that they cannot meet. Um, and th that can be quite dangerous um, uh, in terms of uh, how the, the political system that we have in place and the sort of people that, that they try to appeal, um, mm. and the international community at large, including the European community. Uh, Kez, let me also ask you, you, you mentioned the Rwanda plan, so I want to dig into that a little bit, because last April, uh, the UK government put into place a program to deport irregular asylum seekers to Rwanda to apply for asylum there. That plan was deemed legal by the UK's High Court, but the European Court for Human Rights intervened, and they prevented flights carrying migrants from taking off to Rwanda. Where does that stand now? Um, is the legality of that measure still being debated in court? That's a good point, actually, yes. So, um, we, yes, we, was, we got interim relief uh, last year, which, which prevented the uh, flights from taking off. We went to the High Court, and um, now, next month, there, there's a hearing, four-day um, hearing at the Court of Appeal, where the, uh, where the litigation, the Rwanda litigation, will continue. So that is still pending. Uh, and going back to the point of the illegal migration bill, they're saying that they can return individuals to the, to a first safe, to, to the first safe country that they traveled through. Mm. Um, we don't have a sort of uh, a returns agreement with, uh, with European countries following Brexit. Uh, we don't have access to Eurodac base, uh, database, and even though uh, Rishi Sunak did uh, agree la last week with France uh, the, a 480 million pound deal uh, for uh, asylum seekers, vulnerable asylum seekers, I, I must add, mm. uh, in detention centres. So we don't have those uh, the returns agreement. The Rwanda litigation is ongoing. They cannot return, remove individuals to Rwanda. They cannot possibly be returned to the country where they are fleeing from or, or um, where they claiming to have suffered mm. persecution in. So it just leaves them in limbo. Mm. Um, so that, and that puts a, that puts a strain on the um, right. on, on the on the on the, the governmental purse. Mm. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Aidan White, Kes Siddiqui, and Stephen Barnett.
This episode was produced by Diana Karim, Wusama Alouni, Fungi Nguyen, and Harry Fawcett. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Saren Morali, Linda Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next show. Thank you.